This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to get down the rabbit hole on Vestas V150 blades. They've had to stop 150 turbines. They've had some quality control issues. We're going to chat through some of that. We're also going to talk more about the logistics of blade transport. Some really interesting photos have come out recently of a blade pitched up in the air at about a 45 degree angle. It seems uh, not only gravity defying, but just it almost like seems like they're fake. So we're going to chat a little more about that, even though we've talked some about uh, it, that in the past. In our tech segment, we're going to talk about floating hydrogen. There's uh, a, a generation plant concept for out in the middle of the ocean. And uh, it's got some interesting, uh, some interesting ideas there. And then lastly, we're talking more about checklists, which we've also covered in the past. Um, uh, a man wrote a, a great article about checklists as far as uh, drone safety and all this other stuff. And we'll talk about how that can apply to other areas in the industry. So, Alan, uh, let's let's first talk about blade transport. So some of these photos um, floating around the web are blowing people's minds. They it. It legitimately blows my mind as well. I mean, in this blade, it's it's a two-piece blade, and you can see like the root of it is you know bolted to this special truck, and the truck can't be more than forty feet long, I guess. And the blade itself, this this half of the blade is probably what fifty meters. You know, this is probably a hundred meter blade, and it's just pitched up in the air at about a maybe a 30, 40 degree angle. How do the how does the physics work on this? <laughs> Well, they have to have a lot of weight in the bottom, which the, the blade does, and that the top's lighter than the bottom. Otherwise, this thing would tip over. But essentially, they got to try to keep the center of, of gravity of that blade somewhere between the wheels on the trailer. Otherwise, the whole thing's yeah. toppling over. So it's got to be a very slow, rising, tilting process. And then combined with you just raise the center of gravity. So you're kind of raising the center of gravity up, if you think of it that way. And if you've ever... Uh, had something in the back of a pickup truck that was sort of top heavy and it wants to tip over mm-hmm. all the time. This is good. It's just, just like that scenario where you, you raise this mass way up, up in the air and you don't want it to go left or right because it's going to take every, it's just, it'll flip over the truck and everything's going to be totaled anywhere around it. So it's a, a little bit of complicated process. I always, when we see these images of where they've tilted the blades up in the air, I think that's a very European thing to do because in America there's, there's power lines and telephone lines <laughs> on poles everywhere in America. So it's pretty, pretty hard to do that, I think, in the States. Uh, and in the States, we, we do tend to just try to find routes that don't we can lay the, the blade down, just drive it all the way to the site. But in Europe, the, there's some really tight corners and places you got to get up in, and you really don't have any options but to tilt the blade up and then drive it through the, through the community, which is fascinating because the the physics of that are really complicated and the truck driving ability has got to be off the charts yeah i mean well so how does a process like this get get started i mean they number one who do they 
find to, I mean, is it the same people who are designing blades? Like who's a specialist in whether or not this can work? I mean, how many engineers sit down in a room and say, okay, like how do you calculate the loads and how do they calculate? Well, yeah, a 10 mile per hour wind gust is going to shove this down the mountain, you know, and tip the whole thing over. What does that process look like? Well, it's a, it's a series of engineers that are, are evaluating what that load looks like and what are the parameters in which you can tilt the blade up in the air and get down the road safely. So they'll put restrictions on on those sort of things. So they have to pick the perfect day, the perfect wind speeds and directions, uh, and also probably clearing off the road so they have less traffic on it during that time of day where they know they're coming through. So you know you can get through there without having like a, a traffic accident or some uh, incalculable uh, problem in your in your yeah. roadway, right? If you got to get through this passage before the wind picks up, and you know the wind's going to pick up at four o'clock, and it's three thirty. <laughs> no matter what's in your way, you're going through it, and and that's part of the the setup of it all. Is that uh, there's a lot of studies done on that, and I know when we move, uh, like when they move large aircraft sections, like Airbus has moved wing sections and fuselage sections down these narrower roads. It's a there's a whole group of engineers and uh, workers that are just devoted just to that particular task and making sure that gets pulled off safely. So it, it's no small feat. There's been a lot of effort put into it before it even starts. Well, yeah, and it also seems, I mean, we've talked at length about different things sounding good on paper. <laughs> and this one also seems like you would definitely need some very legitimate engineer specialists who are like, understand all the different changes in, in wind, just like the changes of the pitch of the road. I mean, if you have a road that's just got a little bit of slant or a bunch of potholes, I, I would imagine that has implications for this. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. you know, potholes can't be, otherwise this, this would be impossible if if potholes were, you know, causing these trucks to crash, which clearly they're not. But, you know, there's like, there's like a lot of other factors besides just like making a model on, on a computer, I would assume. Oh, yeah. And the road conditions are, are part of that process on the on the safety evaluations. If you had a large pothole or some sort of road erosion, that's going to get fixed before they even start down that pathway. So mm, if, that you, if, you, if you look at some of the, the uh, in the United States, you tend to move things by train, but in Europe, they tend to move it by vehicle or ship. Uh, if you look at the roadways in Europe compared to the United States, they just are better. <laughs> they're yeah, just, they're way better. Yeah. That's why the Audubon can exist. Right, right. In America, you would think, oh, if I'm driving through New Jersey in February, it's full of potholes. Well, it's not always that way in Europe. So our, our perspective on it's a little bit different. But you're right. Uh, any sort of unexplained problem i.e. pothole, broken, a bridge that can't handle the loads. Think about all those. I mean, if you're crossing a bridge, yeah. you got to make sure it can handle all those loads. So they have to go all the way down uh, to the to the street level and figure out what's going on and where they can make it through it. I'm sure that the engineers have driven that route many times before they actually pull it off with a real blade. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, I mean, uh, you know, these photos are on windy roads and, and mountains. And if you got to the point where you had to go back because the truck <laughs> couldn't physically turn around, it's like, Guys, let's just let's just push this down the mountain. Like we just need to give up. We need to quit. We can't right. back up thirty-five miles. Like I quit. Yeah, right. That would yeah. be just a nightmare, nightmare scenario. So let let's shift gears here to um, Vestas. So they've had some problems with their V one fifty four point two megawatt wind turbine, and in Sweden there was a collapse of one of them, and now they've said that they're halting one hundred fifty turbines now, and uh, that they found a bonding failure on route 
or on blade root inserts. So what, what does this sound like to you as far as is, is going on in the uh, the manufacturing process? It sounds like they've had some metal inserts and in, in on blades there tend to be metal inserts at the base of the blade so that you can bolt it up to the hub. And if they've had contamination, like if there's any sort of oil or silicon or things that prohibit, prohibit bonding to the blade itself, then it doesn't stick or doesn't hold. And mechanically, you don't know what you have. And it could be things like even finishes on bolts, inserts, those sort of things, which um, or heat treat even, like a heat treat issue. So there's a lot of ways to get contamination into the process, which can therefore thereby reduce the, the load capability of that connection. And you don't know because it's not like it's visible to the naked eye a lot of times. So you could have some sort of weird contamination issue to the naked eye, it looks normal. And then once you install into the blade and get out in service, then you have all these failures. And then that's when all the engineers and all the process people pile into a conference room and start trying to figure out what's going on. And then, you know, they're, they're getting samples back from the field, they're cross-sectioning them, they're doing all kinds of analysis on those parts to determine where the failure mode is and why is it occurring, where in that process of assembly did occur and it's a lot Mm -hmm. of times it's something really relatively simple that just got overlooked or wasn't checked or uh, the quality system didn't have a way to check it or someone missed a checkoff point something like that it's usually not a a malicious thing it's just an oversight and now you got to go pull 150 blades or turbines worth I, i thought it was 150 turbines worth which would be 450 blades off and mm-hmm. replace them that's gonna stink yeah so that's, that's why i always say it's always better to design in the quality up front and kind of keep track of all the little variables up front so if you do have that an issue later on you can figure out what it is pretty quickly um because you want to catch it early <laughs> right you want to you want to catch it before blades get out in service because that's that's your worst case scenario what just happened to vestas worst case scenario is blade breaks takes down the turbine a lot of press written about it. You got to go figure out where all these blades are. First, you got to figure out what happened. You got to find out where all these blades are. And you got to take those turbines out of service. That's just a lose-lose any way you go about it. Well, and also the the issue of figuring out how to, uh, or, you know, whether other blades might have had that same defect too. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's why companies do batching. And I mean, you know, WeatherGuard is ISO certified. So right. I mean, what does that process look like? Mm-hmm. Hey, how, how can you weed out that this hasn't, pervaded the entire you know stock of your product or your service lot traceability is usually the the best way to do that uh if you control lots and know what that lot looked like and you have documentation of that particular lot like if let's just say these this this problem area is some sort of bolt if you bring your 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 bolts in terms of lots and you're keeping some of those bolts aside and that don't get stuck into the turbine, then if you have a problem with the bolts, you can go back to some out of that same lot and do some mechanical testing on them. A lot, a lot of times uh, on the aircraft side, they just do random testing just for that purpose. They'll take a lot mm-hmm. of material in, they'll mechanically verify that it, it does what the manufacturer says it's gonna do, and then it gets implemented on the aircraft. Something like that probably happens in wind turbines also because it reduces risk but things slip through the system. And that's most likely what happened here. It's not so much that the system probably wasn't designed to catch it. It just didn't catch that particular escape. 
So I mean, is this a situation where would a company like Vestas have insurance against something like this? Or is it just mm. like out of pocket? Here's 450 blades worth to just eat that cost. Uh, it depends on what the factors are. I don't, you know, there's Vestas wrote in the, in the lightning area, Vestas wrote off $175 million for lightning issues, which didn't appear to be covered by insurance. At least there's nothing I've seen in the, in any publication that said that. It makes me think that Vestas is sort of self-insuring. A lot of aircraft companies do that too for a myriad of reasons. Um, Mm-hmm. Because at that point, who's going to insure you, right? And and the downside risk for the insurance company is so large that your premiums go so high that you might as well not even just self-insure at that point, which is what happens. Um, and a lot of times that um, they do, a lot of engineering companies do carry basically engineering insurance, which means that if an engineer makes a miscalculation nothing that's malicious but it's essentially there's an escape there's a, a wrong calculation or a digit gets thrown off or a decimal place moves and you don't get the answer the right answer there's insurance you can purchase for that uh, but it's not easy to get and <laughs> if you can well imagine the more riskier the uh, application the more the insurance costs so if you're doing rocket launches <laughs> the insurance gets pretty high if you're making little plastic widgets goes down and that's sort of how that marketplace works so i'd imagine on the wind turbine side most of those companies are probably self-insuring for a large part of it all right in our second segment today here we're going to start off with axiona leading a plan to build the first uh, floating wind and solar hydrogen complex so the plan in a nutshell is to build this uh, off the coast of uh, you know Madrid, the Canary Islands, Andalusia, uh, a couple others, and, and just essentially have a floating wind farm that can also produce hydrogen. They said that the two key benefits here are that endless supply of water, right? <laughs> Number two, uh, they can just take the power and essentially eliminate the need for cabling and sending it back to the mainland. They can just, you know, send it off to, to barge right from, right from there. Um, Alan, you uh, are a little skeptical of this idea, though, I take it. It sounds like it's a really complicated thing to do. We have floating hydrogen generation plants way offshore. What is the upside of that versus onshore? We, there's water <laughs> right at the beach, so it isn't like it's hard to pump water from the ocean to separate it to make it to hydrogen. That's not particularly hard. It sounds like, to me, a taxation issue that if you get far enough offshore and once you were in international waters, that what's the taxation in international waters? I'm not sure. It's kind of like or it's kind of like flying, uh, flying internationally. Once you get off the ground, then there's a little cart that used to come down the highway of the airplane where they want to sell you alcohol and cigarettes because they're duty free, right? That was the mm-hmm. thing. So is this sort of duty free hydrogen? Because that's what it acts like, that you're making energy, which you could sell to any marketplace because it's, it's going to be transported by ship. But the the place where it's manufactured, there's no governing body there. And that's how you lower the cost, overall cost of the operations. You're not paying taxes to anybody. But obviously, the equipment has to be made on shore somewhere and shipped out to sea. But there's got to be some angle to it, which is tax-related. It just feels like that because putting anything out in the ocean... It's not easy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're kind of, it seems like this is being pitched as like a hydrogen plant, 
but maybe obviously you couldn't just put you know two dozen wind uh wind turbines you know 100 feet offshore you couldn't do it right there so maybe they're saying all right this is a floating wind turbine farm first and then let's also just do hydrogen which makes a little more sense because obviously we know like floating wind farms are coming up and they're going to become more and more prevalent mm. so maybe it's more like that angle that this is the reason we're going offshore because you know we're, we're going to get the permits and we can do it out there but let's also have hydrogen whereas maybe hydrogen if hydrogen's a focus then yeah it doesn't seem like either of those two um things that they list having access to water and not having to to, to <laughs> ship it back to the mainland those don't matter if you're just right there on the water like you said right. so maybe the key component here is just having the wind farm and that's their their big driver could be could be i always there's a financial aspect to everything that's going on here and where's the angle <laughs> where yeah where's the angle yeah and usually they don't tell you what the angle is in publications so well and we and we talked about this with the potential offshore fishery where they're gonna mm. do um like shellfish and stuff like that like an aquaculture lab i mean the idea of combining a floating wind farm or just an offshore wind farm in general with other things makes some sense you know depending obviously the hard things are making it hospitable for humans if they have to live there right et cetera, et cetera, transporting all that stuff but it seems like more and more people are saying like why does it have to be just one thing Maybe it can be two things, right? Maybe it could be three things. And then, you know, if transportation out there gets easier, like with the the also the rise of EVTOLs, right? The electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that we talk about in our other podcast, that whole like ecosystem of getting offshore and, you know, tending to the wind, hydrogen, oh, yeah. you know, scallop farm <laughs> out, out in, this, in the Red Sea, maybe becomes a lot more sustainable i still think you'd have to have people stationed out there somewhere near this stuff right if you're going to have a number of wind turbines and a hydrogen generation plant you're going to need a staff of what 30 40 no, 50, for sure. 50 people you're going to have yeah. to have living quarters you'd think unless everybody's shooting back and forth to to whatever the nearest land point is every day and night and they have shifts and there's just something about this that doesn't make a lot of sense but it, it, on these offshore wind turbines right now they have these sort of floating hotel things that are going up around them you, you may have something like that where you're living essentially on a ship while you're maintaining the operation of these wind turbines and hydrogen plant but you got to have people on site especially if you're making hydrogen and storing hydrogen that's not the easiest thing in the world to do you want to have some oversight on that all the time so there's going to be a number of jobs. Again, it, there'll be a number of jobs offshore, which is interesting. Well, of course, they've been doing it with oil rigs. And I mean, people live on oil platforms, right? Mm -hmm. They totally do. Yeah. But you also know what that risk is, too. Those those jobs are, that's a tough, that's a tough gig. That's a really tough gig. Mm -hmm. and there's, a, there's a lot of risk in that, as we have seen over the years. But, you know, it's, it's, it's doable, but it's not easy. And you really have to have a desire to do it. And there has to be a financial reason to do it. It's not sure that... That's all laid out yet. So our last uh, topic for today, a uh, really good article by Scott Duffin, who's the director of client drone strategy at Skyward, which is a company owned by Verizon. Um, his article on windpowerengineering.com just talks all about checklists and their roles uh, in using drones because obviously they're getting more and more use on all these different sites to the point where you know there's just a lot of potential things that can go wrong and lots of checkpoints and um 
there's just uh, and they're going to start to interact more with you know residences as wind farms go over there and potentially urban areas stuff like that so you know one of his things is uh, creating short clear checklists and also making sure everyone knows which ones are time sensitive which are not um, because obviously if you have a checklist that is stuff you have to bring to the site you can't check that one the day of because it's too late right so mm. um, Alan what stuck out at you about this article because obviously checklists are huge in in the aviation industry with pilots right. have their own checklists right. that they have to run to if something you know a couple warning lights go off um but is this going to get more heavily adopted in, in other industries like wind power i think so i think it's inevitable at some point that there's going to be some standardization in terms of the operation of, of drones and how they operate around wind turbines and other people it, it can't be just pick it out of the back of the pickup truck, turn it on, and let it go. There needs to be some safety checkpoints. And like we talked about previously on in the insurance industry, the insurance industry is going to force that if there's any mm-hmm. anybody that gets hurt here, that, that they're going to start enforcing those things before they go off and fly. There's some minimum checkpoints that are done and making sure the conditions are right. As you can well imagine, um, you know, a drone running into a, a turbine is not a, a great thing, but a drone running into to a person is a lot worse. And and I think those conditions are ripe. As, as we get more and more drones used in more and more places across the world, you're going to have those accidents happen, and that's just going to force the issue, I think. Because the, the checklists are really, really easy to implement, and your ISO training and all your ISO standards are, would ask you to do that. So there's consistency in the product and <laughs> having a drone run into something or somebody is just a bad day. And if you can avoid it by having a simple checklist, like, hey, drone's working properly. We did a visual inspection on it. It goes through its uh, built-in test and it's coming back correct. All the all the software is at the right revision on the drone, that kind of stuff, that really simple stuff can prohibit a lot of problems going forward. So. I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later, even though it doesn't it doesn't seem to be ubiquitous yet. It, it will be relatively soon. Yeah. And they also are going to build habits, just like we talked about with Bjorn Hedges about all the safety checks, you know, when they enter, they enter the energized zones, they enter, go up tower, all the things they have to make sure they do every single time mm. and when they when they leave. Right. And uh, so those procedures, if they're lax, if it's not clear what the seven things you have to do every time you enter you know, and start ascending a, a wind turbine tower, then those aren't going to become habits as quickly. And you want to make sure everyone has those habits. Like every time I, I enter a, a hazardous zone, I do these three things. It's like clockwork and that keeps everyone safe. Because when you get tired, you start to forget the stuff by the wayside, but you still kind of in a zombie fog, just like when you wake up, you stumble in and brush your teeth, right? Right. So, I mean, you, you want the safety checks to be that same thing that even when you're super tired, long, you know, long weeks on the job and a really long day at work, you're just going to zombie go through the motions that you've built as habits. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely building the habits. And as the drones get heavier and larger, which they are, uh, then more, there's more need for that checklist, right? Because your, your risks go up. Uh, a five pound drone is a lot more risky than a half a pound drone and a 50 pound drone is super risky in terms of what it can do to a, a wind turbine or a person than a five pound drone so as, as size and complexity goes up and more automation comes in by the way i think it's even more important that you 
have these simple checklists in place, it will it will occur almost naturally. That, the aircraft industry went through that a long time ago because they were having problems of airplanes crashing for really, really simple things. And that's where it got forced onto the aircraft industry. And that's why as we go through like the 737 MAX issue, one of the you know the key points for getting that aircraft back in the air is that checklist. What do those checklists look like? And does the, the certification authorities, the FAA, YASA, all those organizations, review those checklists to make sure they're appropriate. One, that they're concise and clear, and two, they can be enacted relatively quickly. And the same thing exists on, on, the, on the drone side. You know, you're not in the drone itself, but it's essentially a flying vehicle and you need to follow those same sort of rules because it's been time tested. I think the, the beauty of learning from the aircraft industry is you got a hundred plus years of, of data to go, to go with. And, and I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but it will be it will be implemented whether they want to or not. All right, well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.